Hi, welcome to the eighth and theoretically final uh, session of the Return of the King class. I apologize for the slightly late start today. I was delayed driving my kids home from school and just like rolled into the house about three minutes before class was supposed to start. Um, so anyway, my apologies there. A little bit uh, been one of those afternoons. Um, so today, we, as I say theoretically last because I, I did mention last time that if absolutely pressed, uh, I would, uh, I would add, add an extra week. Um, in fact, I'm kind of thinking of, uh, you know, having a week of sort of retrospective, a kind of a general, you know, Q&A, let's talk about any topic that people want to about the Lord of the Rings in general that we haven't covered uh, over the three different classes that I've been doing the, uh, the Lord of the Rings, stretching back over the last year, so... <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, so yeah, we're 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 probably going to do that. I uh, that might happen next week. I'll have to see how next week looks. I might end up putting it off until after the holidays, the last week of December. Maybe we'll see how that works. But uh, Rebecca, I agree. This did seem to go really fast. I've kind of lost track of uh, uh, the Return of the King. Um, it has seemed like a blur. Um, uh, even though we were only doing once a week, um, but anyway, so um, so <clears throat> that means that I, I would still encourage you to bring up topics. Um, as I've mentioned before, if during class today you have like a completely new topic that you would like to raise, um, uh, that is not a comment that's directly related to to, to what I'm discussing at the time, uh, just make sure to put the word "topic" at the beginning. You know, "topic" preferably in all caps, colon, and then type what you're going to say. Because I can look back over the records of the comments that everybody has made during the classes, and it makes it easy for me to kind of scan through and see if there are topics that I missed. I can go back and pick up on those after the fact, and we can bring those in uh, for our bonus session. But, uh, oh, hello, we have a celebrity with us here today, uh, Dimitri Femi. Professor Femi from uh, from uh, the University of uh, of Wales uh, Institute at Cardiff over there is uh, is joining us today. Hello, Dimitri. She's going to be uh, teaching a wonderful class uh, uh, with us at Mythgard next semester. You guys should all look into it. It's a uh, Celtic mythology and modern children's fantasy literature, looking at both the Celtic mythology itself um, and the way that it has uh, influenced and sort of been reflected in uh, modern fantasy imagination. It should be a really really cool class. Um, so, I, I, if you haven't looked at, look, looked that up yet, you absolutely should. Uh, fun, uh, Demetra, that you're able to join us here for a little bit this afternoon. Um, one other quick thing that I would um, uh, just like to mention, of course, as we come to the end of this, is our first official Mythgard Academy class, which is you know sort of counting against our total um, for the courses that we've arranged to do for this year through our Indiegogo fundraiser a couple months back. Um, and w which means, of course, as I, I, I'm sure many of you know, uh, it is uh, voting time for the next class. This is the final day of voting um, for the next class. And believe it or not, uh, word has it that we have, uh, right as of now, a tie, another dead tie between the top two vote getters for our next class. Um, this, it, is, it, it is currently a dead tie between Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card and Unfinished Tales by J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, they are absolutely even after hundreds and hundreds of votes have been cast. Which means, if you haven't voted yet, by all means, get out there and vote right away. Because even if you only have one vote, it really could be the difference here today. Um, so we do not yet know for sure which... Uh, text we'll be doing next. Um, but, uh, but anyway, as I said, so if you haven't voted, you definitely should. Um, anyway, so uh, 
that's so that's and that class is plan I'm planning to start that in January. So whichever whatever wins, we'll start that one up um, in the beginning of the year. Um, uh, Tom, I guess if we if we uh, do end in an absolute tie, uh, then I would probably um, you know. Uh, Put in the casting vote, but um, but I doubt it'll come to. I'm sure somebody's still left out there to vote. Um, I can't believe that we've had two elections as close as we've had them so far. Um, but anyway, uh, let us uh, let us go on and start our last session here on the Return of the King. So today we're talking about the appendices. Last time we were theoretically talking about the appendices, the, the appendices, but I didn't uh, wasn't able to get to too much of them. I spent all of my time talking about the scouring of the Shire. Uh, and Estelle and Amdir in Aragorn and Arwen's story. So today we're doing a much more general look at the appendices, and I want to start by thinking about what Tolkien says about the appendices, how they develop, and, and sort of the the purpose of them. Uh, Noam Weiss sent me an email with a with a I thought a really you know excellently framed question about this. Um, he said, "Why did you refer to Appendix A as a necessary background of history?" And that was, of course the title of my class session last time, which was, of course, turned out to be a rather ambitious uh, uh, title, as I didn't even really get to that part. For one thing, backgrounds are usually provided prior to dealing with the main subject, not afterwards. Also, I should say that when The Lord of the Rings was first translated into Hebrew, it was without the appendices. They were only included in a later incarnation, which is how I first read it. Bringing the first two elements together, I have to wonder, what are appendices C through F good for? They contain very little information that actually pertains to the story. There are nuggets of such information, sure, and it seems as if Tolkien is just indulging himself. Why is it beneficial to know the lineage of hobbits or the historical development of Elvish languages to which we don't have a dictionary? Why, for that matter, not the cuisines in different parts of Middle-earth, the wardrobes? Why spend so long on the calendar and time measurements and not on the different time zones? The Numenorians should be aware of that due to the palantiri, if nothing else. So we have a couple questions here. Again, why would the history given in Appendix A, and also I, I, I assume by implication um, in his question there, Appendix B as well, why you know why would I characterize that as 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 the necessary background of history? Two, um, why why do we get the stuff that we get in C through F? And given the stuff that we get in C through F, why don't we get more stuff? Why why that stuff and not other stuff? Um, these are all really, really good questions, and uh, and that's kind of what I want to start off addressing. And I want to address it by going back and looking at some of the things that Tolkien said about his appendices and the way that he, the way that he thought about this and the way that he talked about this stuff. Um, so, I want to start off. This is the beginning of his uh, forward to the second edition uh, of the Fellowship of the Ring. This is the, uh, you know, from the same thing that we were uh, quoting from last time when we were talking about allegory and applicability uh, in relationship to the scouring of the Shire. These are the first two paragraphs. This tale grew in the telling until it became a history of the Great War of the Ring and included many glimpses of yet more ancient history that preceded it. It was begun soon after The Hobbit was written and before its publication in 1937, but I did not go on with this sequel for I wished first to complete and set in order the mythology and legends of the Elder Days, which had then been taking shape for some years. I decided to do this for my own satisfaction, and I had little hope that other people would be interested in this work, especially since it was primarily linguistic in inspiration, and was begun in order to provide the necessary background of history for Elvish tongues. 
When those whose advice and opinion I sought corrected little hope to no hope, I went back to the sequel, encouraged by requests from readers for more information concerning hobbits and their adventures. But the story was drawn irresistibly towards the older world, and became an account, as it were, of its end and passing away before its beginning and middle had been told. The process had begun in the writing of The Hobbit, in which there were already some references to the older matter, Elrond, Gondolin, the High Elves, and the Orcs, as well as glimpses that had arisen unbidden of things higher or deeper or darker than its surface, Durin, Moria, Gandalf, the Necromancer, the Ring. The discovery of the significance of these glimpses, and of their relation to the ancient histories, revealed the Third Age and its culmination in the War of the Ring. Okay, so I want to think about, so of course the first thing that you will see is why I, was where I got the title for that last class session from. The Necessary Background of History was a quotation here from how he characterizes the growth of his stories. Now of course in, in the context that he says it, he's not talking about the Lord of the Rings, or about the Appendices certainly, he's talking about the Silmarillion stories, right? He's talking about the stories of the Elder Days, the legends of the, you know, the mythology and legends of the Elder Days. What will later on get published is the Silmarillion, um, after his death, of course. And again, notice how he described those stories coming about, that, um, that, that whole sort of body of fiction that he'd been working on and revising for a long time. It was primarily linguistic in inspiration and was begun in order to provide the necessary background of history for Elvish tongues. That is to say, for him, the you know, we, we were, we were you know, in, in thinking about the, the, you know, the question, you know, Noam's question about the appendices, the question was, um, what, why have all this stuff? What does all this stuff really add uh, to the story, and why this stuff and not, and not other stuff, right? Well, one thing that Tolkien tells us here about his creative process is that it was not at all, for him, a question of the story first emerging and then adding stuff, right? and choosing, sort of picking and choosing which stuff he wanted to do. Rather, for him, the stuff came first, and the stories grew up around it. And in particular, of course, uh, the, the, the core, the most important of all of the stuff uh, that, uh, that Tolkien had developed was his languages, was the linguistic materials. So, you know, those, the, you know, the two appendices that we get on languages uh, in The Return of the King, um, I think I, I suspect calendars are probably a pretty close uh, race, I would think, with it. But most likely, um, the long description of the languages, especially the long descri description of the alphabets and the writing and everything, um, is probably the place where most readers of Tolkien find that there is more information than they really uh, than they really want or need. Uh, now, I know that there are some people, uh, Andrew, of course, I'm thinking of you, who are, who are back there, you know, probably gasping and spluttering as I say that, imagining that anybody would think that the linguistic information that he gives is more than we would need or want. Um, but I do think that that is probably uh, the experience of a lot of readers. But, of course, it's there, not, you know, again, Noam uh, uh, in the, in the, question that I quoted before sort of suggested, you know, asked, you know, was Tolkien just indulging himself? In part, I think, yes. Again, notice, look at how he talks about this, right? To him, 
he, he started with these languages and with the invention of these languages. And being a philologist, he invented not only languages, but history and interrelationships between the history of the languages and the interrelationship, the history of the interrelationship between these two different elven, uh, elvish languages that he had made. So um, that is where these stories grew. Um, the stories, he says, grew out of the history of the languages that he'd already developed um, and were begun in order to provide the necessary background of history for Elvish tongues. These languages need a context. They need a social context. They need a history um, in order for them really to live in the way that he had, that they were already sort of, be, you know, coming to life in his mind. And so stories naturally come from that. Um, you know, to somebody like Tolkien, to a philologist like Tolkien, when you look at the way a word changes over time, um, it's not just that there is a story, there must be a story to explain that. The change of the word is a story, right? It reveals a story. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, there are different ways that it can work out. There are different ways that you can do that, but that's the way, um, but that's the way that he thinks about this. <laughs> Rebecca says, it blows my mind when people don't get excited about morphology. I know, right? I mean, seriously. Um, <laughs> yeah, so for Tolkien, that was, that, was, that was really where the heart of these stories came from. I, so one reason why I quote this is uh, to, to draw attention to the fact that, again, this is not just a question of, first I'm going to write a story, and then I'm going to invent and I'm going to invent and elaborate um, you know, long histories to go along with it and, uh, and all of this other detail, you know, just to flesh it out and make sure that it's, um, that it's you know, really complete and thorough. Some of these things are things that he thought about during the process of writing and were things that, he, that were to him part of the process of, of story writing and storytelling. I suspect the calendars um, really sort of fall into that, uh, in, into that category for him. But the languages are more at the heart of it. And that's the stuff that, although it might seem to many readers very superfluous, uh, it is exactly the opposite. Um, it is the heart and the seed of everything else uh, that has come uh, that has come out of this. Um, yeah, as uh, Ed points out, he spent weeks making the phases of the moon come out right. His consistency, his commitment to consistency and verisimilitude, mark the entire work. Um, Yes, there are a couple places where he seems to have made mistakes in, in The Hobbit with uh, Faces of the Moon. And these are things that like really bothered him. He really wanted to go back and fix the moon references. And uh, those are exactly the kinds of things that I am least likely to notice or pay a lick of attention to, I will, I will confess, uh, as, uh, as I'm reading. But boy, did they bother Tolkien. Um, so yes, in part, again, that's how, to him, developing and, and working out a story that kind of thing was just sort of a necessary thing. So again, in thinking about the answer to the question, why the appendices? Why all this stuff? Part of it can be seen as a kind of a side effect, right? He, he works out the calendars because he, he's giving dates a lot, right? You know, dates come up. The hobbits talk about dates. Um, and in order for him to use dates, he has to work out that system. Uh, in his own mind, and so he's got that worked out, and he and he and he wants to present it too. So some of it, is sort of side effects like that. Um, other parts of it, though, are but it, but it isn't all like that. Some of it is really closer to the center of things. Um, and I know that there are some of you. I mean, I was already joking about uh, Andrew, but I can tell also Rebecca. Rachel Barton says I fell in love with languages and philology in great part due to Appendix E. Um, 
uh, yeah, I, 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 and the fact is, in those appendices, is he indulging himself? Yeah, in part, I think he is. Is it necessary for, I mean, even if we say it was necessary to his uh, invention process, is it necessary for him to, 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 to give it all and explain it all? No, no, that part of it is, in some ways, a bit of an indulgence. Um, but uh, but it's, I know it's certainly one that many people have appreciated over the years, and, uh, and it is certainly, uh, I think, um, you know, seed that has definitely found uh, good soil at various times. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, so let's see. Jan, I'm about to answer your question in the next slide, I think. Okay, good. So I'm just scanning back over some of your other comments here. Um, yeah, good. Um, but the other thing that I would want to just draw our attention to here, because I think it's going to be something I'm going to want to come back to again later, um, and one of the reasons I gave the whole second paragraph there as well, is just to draw attention to the way that he talks about his story's emergence. Notice again, he, you know, step one that I wanted to draw attention to is the fact that he, he began with stuff and story grew from it. But the second thing is I want to draw attention to the way that he talks about the growth of the story. He talks about the growth of the story as an independent and organic things. Uh, th notice the discovery of the significance of these glimpses. Um, this isn't something that he invented, it's something that he discovered. That is consistently how he talks about uh, this story. And it's one thing that I want to come back to not right away, um, but it's one thing I want to come back to in a little bit, to talk about the frame of the appendices and the way that he presents the material, um, the way that he talks about the story and the way that he presents us with this stuff. Um, outside, you know, the, the sort of the, the apparatus of this story that is outside the actual narrative from, you know, from from chapter, you know, from the long-expected party to the Grey Havens. Um, so I just wanted to, to have this in our heads um, so that we can remember that as we come back to this issue in a little bit. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, Andrew points out, and, and, and Andrew, you're right to mention this, uh, because, of course, I've, I've been alluding to the to the, the linguistic appendices, and I've been thinking and, and referring primarily to Appendix E, where he talks about the alphabets and all of that stuff, but I, I, I think Andrew's right. Andrew says, I think the real elvish craft, Andrew there quoting on fairy stories by Tolkien, uh, is Appendix F, where he aligns primary world languages to his secondary one, ones. Uh, there's true craftsmanship there, absolutely. Um, and we're going to come back to that issue a little bit there, too, because it is it is different. Um, it is a different issue, right? There's, you know, the, the one thing is the invention of his languages and, and alphabets and things. But then there's the question of how he presents that. Again, it's, it's a framework question, right? How he deals with that and how he explains it, um, the translation and transmission of these languages uh, and the way that he has connected the languages with the people uh, and worked out, as Andrew says, the alignment between his... Uh, sort of invented languages, some of which are theoretical, some of which uh, actually exist, uh, and his uh, and his uh, and real-world languages. Um, but anyway, let's uh, c coming back to the appendices for a second. Again, I, I want to still coming back to to Noam's initial question: Why are we getting all this stuff? Where did this come from? So I want to look a little bit at, uh, in a sense, the kind of the history of the appendices, where they came from, uh, and how Tolkien came to do them. And I want to look at a couple uh, letters, uh, excerpts from letters. 
that he wrote about the appendices. Uh, this is to uh, a, a, a friend uh, and reader, you know, to whom he lent, um, uh, to whom he lent the the, uh, uh, you know, to, to to whom he was corresponding about the Lord of the Rings, um, Naomi Mitchison, and he says to her, "I will try and answer your questions." She'd sent him a whole bunch of questions about the Lord of the Rings. I may say that they are very welcome. I like things worked out in detail myself, and answers provided to all reasonable questions. Your letter will, I hope, guide me in choosing the kind of information to be provided, as promised, in an appendix. And strength an appendix, he says. Listen to that. Isn't that adorable? Like he was originally imagining there was only going to be an appendix. Uh, anyway, and strengthen my hand with the publishers. Since the third volume will be rather slimmer than the second, events move quicker and less explanations are needed. There will, I believe, be a certain amount of room for such matter. My problem is not the difficulty of providing it, but of choosing from the massive material that I have already composed. Now, notice a couple things that we learn here from this first paragraph, right? One is that, again, he's not, when he does the appendices, he's not like, let me sit down and, and write a whole bunch of stuff, right? He's got the stuff. The only question is, as he says, choosing from the massive stuff that he has in order to present those, and to present those in some kind of organized way in an appendix, in reality, six appendices, as it turns out. Um, the second thing that we see here um, is, um, and strengthen my hand with the publishers. I think that's another interesting line. That is to say that he is anticipating uh, pushback from the publishers, that they're not going to want to publish all the stuff that he's going to want to publish, and in fact, he's right to anticipate that. They are going to push back and not permit him to publish all the stuff that he wants to publish. Um, so, uh, so again, we see here, I think, his desire. He really, he would want to put as much stuff. In his vision, his ideal is a big old fat appendix. And there's room, right? Because The Return of the King is shorter, as we saw, than you know, The Two Towers and The Fellowship of the Ring. So, so the third volume is shorter anyway, so let's squeeze in a whole bunch of stuff. Because i got all this stuff, and I'd love to share it. right? So I think th those are some things we can see just from that first paragraph. There is, of course, a clash between literary technique and the fascination of elaborating in detail an imaginary, an imaginary mythical age. Mythical, not allegorical. My mind does not work allegorically. As a story, I think it is good that there should be a lot of things unexplained, especially if an explanation actually exists. And I have perhaps from this point of view erred in trying to explain too much uh, and give too much past history. Many readers have, for instance, rather stuck at the Council of Elrond. And even in a mythical age, there must be some enigmas, as there always are. Tom Bombadil is one, intentionally. Now, notice the key thing there. I, as a story, I think it is good that there should be a lot of things unexplained, especially if an explanation actually exists, right? So if you have an explanation for something, that is not an excuse for giving it. It's an excuse for withholding it, right? It's unexplained things are cooler, especially if a real explanation lies there somewhere. Um, this is one of the things um, he talked about. The, you know, the the title of today's class is the perception of depth. This is a phrase um, that is often applied to Tolkien. That, you know, one of the things that his works are, prayed for, are praised for is the perception of depth that they provide. That sense that we get that although we're not told everything, there you know there is a really detailed history. All of these stories 
somehow exist somewhere, and we get the sense of ourselves just kind of scratching the surface as we're reading. No matter how deeply we read, no matter how carefully we read, we're still only scratching the surface of this of this really profound and intricate history of Middle Earth um, that he is, you know, only telling one very small and partial story of. Um, and I, I think that, that <clears throat> that's one of the things that he's pointing to there about uh, things being unexplained, especially if an explanation actually exists. Um, but now notice, what he was emphasizing at the beginning of that second paragraph is the clash between literary technique on the one hand and the fascination of elaborating on the other hand. He recognizes that those two desires are in conflict with each other. Um, on the one hand, he loves the supplying of lore, right? Let's fill in gaps. Let's, 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 you know, dot all those I's and cross all those T's. Let's provide all those explanations. But he recognizes that stories are better when all those explanations are not provided. Um, and so this is a balance, it seems, that he's suggesting that he wants to try to maintain in the appendices. He doesn't want to sort of uh, in indulge himself too much. And I think indulge is, a, is an appropriate word here. Um, he, he will say, no, we'll, uh, we'll, see, we'll see this in particular in the next letter, um, that he loves doing the elaborating in detail an imaginary mythical age. But he recognized, you know, his, his own literary judgment as a storyteller tells him too much of that, and it's actually not going to be good, right? Um, and I think a lot of people uh, would be interested to, uh, you know, a lot of people don't recognize or don't remember that he said that he wanted Tom Bombadil to be an enigma, right? So the fact that there's no hard and fast answer about who, who and what Tom Bombadil is, um, that's how it's supposed to be, right? That's exactly how he wanted it to be. I think it's important for us to remember that. Um, uh, yeah, good, let's see... Um, um, Yana says, wasn't a whole bunch of the unfinished tales supposed to go in the appendices too? Some of it, not all of it. The Quest of Erebor, most famously, um, was originally intended for the appendices, or at least it was originally, um, it came from stuff he was writing on the appendices, and in the end they're just like, you know, are you kidding me? Like, a, 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 Appendix A is already that long, and you also want to throw in this entire narrative of you know Gandalf and like let's like retell the entire not the not the entire but anyway let's like re, re retell at least chapter one of the Hobbit from Gandalf's point of view just tacked on there at the end no way <laughs> um, so yeah Yana there are there certainly was material that uh, um, that he had to cut out um, uh, that. Um, that uh, that he had originally thought of um, for the appendices, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Rebecca says the information doesn't ever feel newly composed or tacked on. It feels well appended. Yeah, it's added afterwards, um, but yes, it's not um, certainly not newly composed or tacked on. Right again, that's what he was emphasizing before. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Timothy says the verisimilitude is heightened by the unex by by things being unexplained to the actual reader to the real world reader, but known to the fictional reader. Um, I agree. That's a very subtle level of verisimilitude. It is something that one often experiences when you read older books. Um, that is, you know, uh, like Homer, for instance. 
or Latin epics or medieval works, you'll come across references to things that it's clear the writer is taking for granted, right? That you know this particular story or that you will understand the context of these particular things. And as modern readers, we don't get it. We don't really know what they're referring to at all, right? Um, that that is a that is a, a very uh, Timothy a very cunning level of verisimilitude, right? Um, explain, you know something which uh, gives you that sense of depth, right? That sense of you know I'm on the outside looking in at at a, a, you know a genuine different culture and a, and, and a genuine different history. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Uh, Dr. Femi adds, for many readers and scholars, this difficult balance was the reason why he didn't finish the Silmarillion. Do you tell all or do you keep things mysterious? Um, yes. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And she adds you know, that she's not sure that she agrees with that, that, that that's really the root of why it, it didn't get finished or published. Um, you know, she suspects that the mythology had just grown too out of control to make a coherent volume. Certainly, based on the comments that uh, Christopher and he made, made about you know, just the work he was doing at the end of his life. It did seem like it, you know he was sort of cleaning out the Aegean stables, uh, you know, and trying to organize everything and make everything coherent and 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 consistent. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I I know that that's one of the things that people you know I think of comments that I've heard Michael Drought make before. You know, he and I had a debate once, uh, not a public debate, a private debate, about teaching Tolkien and whether you teach the Silmarillion first and then the Lord of the Rings or the Lord of the Rings first and then the Silmarillion. Um, he does the latter way, I do the former way. I do the Silmarillion first and he does the Silmarillion second. Uh, and his argument for doing the Silmarillion second is, no, you don't want to mess with the perception of depth because all those references to Silmarillion stuff, um, it's it's cooler, it's better to read The Lord of the Rings not knowing who Orome was. So when Theoden is compared to Orome the Great in his charge, it hits you very differently. If you're like, ah, oh, Orome, yes, I remember about Orome and all the stories, then if you don't know that and you just have that, you know, kind of, Timothy, like what you were just talking about, right, that, uh, that sense of, of an illusion being made to something that everybody inside the story, that readers of the story would, might, would well be familiar with, but we the readers aren't, right? Um, so, uh, you know, and I, I agree that that's a really important phenomenon, and, and I do try, when I teach The Lord of the Rings, I do try to remind people, don't forget that, although it's, it is, I think, perfectly appropriate to be making comparisons with the Silmarillion or to be thinking carefully about allusions that he makes to Silmarillion characters or events. It's always important to remember the intended audience of the Lord of the Rings didn't know anything about the Silmarillion, and he knew they didn't know anything about the Silmarillion, right? So um, we can't, uh, we have to at least recall that. Um, yeah, but but I agree with the the, the the Silmarillion issue, um, how much of that you reveal and how much of it um, uh, remains an enigma uh, is a really important question. And of course, you know, there are still lots of, you know, there's still people who, you know, debate about the composition of the Silmarillion as Christopher Tolkien published it. Um, you know, as he, as Christopher Tolkien talks about, especially in the, in the foreword to the first volume um, of the history of Middle-earth, to the first volume of, of, uh, um, uh, uh, Book of Lost Tales, he talks about basically what provoked him to 
publish the, the History of Middle-earth series and wanting to present all of this information to people so that they don't have to guess, you know, what he did and how much sort of juggling and rewriting and shifting around he did behind the scenes that he wanted to, that he wanted to present that stuff. Um, you know, uh, Dimitri, I'm thinking about this, this sort of clash that Tolkien's talking about here. Would Tolkien have done that? Would he have wanted the history of Middle Earth series? I'm not sure he would have, right? I, I, I'm not sure that that doesn't go a little bit too far uh, in the in the one in the one of those two directions. Um, though certainly, as a scholar, it's hard to complain about the history of Middle Earth series. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, um, let me let me carry on. I'm finished reading this passage yet. In the meantime, remember he's still talking to Naomi Mitchison here. In the meanwhile, I am giving what fragments of time I have to making compressed versions of such historical, ethnographical, and ling linguistic matter as can go in the appendix. If it will interest you, I will send you a copy, rather rough, of the matter dealing with languages and writing, peoples in translation. The latter has given me much thought. It seems seldom regarded by other creators of imaginary worlds, however gifted as narrators, such as Edison. He's referring to E.R. Edison, the author of The Worm Ouroboros, um, which was a, 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 an earlier fantasy work, um, sort of a little earlier in Tolkien's generation. Uh, really interesting uh, book, written consistently in a, in a deliberately archaic idiom, kind of like William Morris's idiom. But then I am a philologist, and much though I should like to be more precise in other cultural aspects and features, that is not within my competence. Anyway, language is the most important, for the story has to be told, and the dialogue conducted in a language, but English cannot have been the language of any people at that time. Um, by the way, I absolutely love this moment by Tolkien, right? He starts off with a sort of gesture of humility, then I'm a philologist, and much though I should like to be more precise in other cultural aspects and features, that's not within my competence, right? I'm going to talk about language a lot, because that's all I know, right? I'm a philologist, that's what I do, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to talk about the language stuff, because I, I don't, I'm not competent to talk about the rest of the stuff. And then he adds, anyway, language is the most important. And, but, but besides, that's what really matters anyhow. It happens to be what my confidence is in. But in any case, it is objectively the most significant of all of them. I just, I just, I, I just love that that sort of uh, shift from uh, from this the sort of gesture of humility to the uh, the very grandiose claims for his uh, for his own particular field. But of course, he's right. The story has to be told, and the dialogue conducted in a language. And he's right to say that most creators of imaginary worlds never think about this. That is, the you know the the vast majority of books written in English have just the the sort of assumed convention between the writer and the reader that I'm going to give you these this dialogue that is conducted in English, uh, and you know, we might recognize the fact that these people are not actually speaking English, but I'm not going to draw any attention to that fact. We're just going to sort of pretend that everything's being conducted in English and carry on because otherwise you couldn't write the book. Otherwise you couldn't, you, nobody could read the book, right? Otherwise it's it's not possible. So most people just don't think about it and don't work it out. Um, and this is true even of other authors who do think about it some. You know, I, for instance, uh, to, to, to cite a much more recent example um, that people have talked about a lot, thinking of George R. R. Martin. 
and uh, the, um, the, the Dothraki language um, that he introduces in those books. Okay, so he has another culture that do speak another language, Dothraki. And there are translation issues, and, you know, we get, uh, you know, in, 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 in Book 1, in Game of Thrones, we get Khal Drogo sort of laboriously learning uh, the language of Westeros, which is, which is, which is kind of cool and, and, and really adorable, actually, um, and all that kind of thing. Sure. But in Westeros, apparently, they speak English, <laughs> or at least so we're led to believe. Again, still, the rest of the language, you know, the rest of the peoples are still operating under that unspoken convention between author and reader, I'm just going to pretend everything's in English, right? And you're going to pretend with me that everything is in English. Tolkien wasn't content with that, right? Tolkien says, no, look, I'm not just going to pretend. These people were talking English and never think about it and never talk about it because they weren't, especially since remember that the fictional frame of the story of the Lord of the Rings as a story is that it's the prehistory of our world. So he has to, as Andrew was reminding us before, give relationships, make connections between the languages that are spoken um, with the people in the stories and primary world languages because in a sense... Fictionally, they are primary world languages. So we can't just be like, oh, this is a fictional world in which everybody speaks English because they didn't speak English because it's not in that... It's a fictional world within the frame of the history of our world, and he's not content with that, with that tacit convention. So he puts a great deal of thought into it and how to correspond um, the languages to modern languages, how to render the... So that when he is... You know, he's not just pretending that everything is in modern English and then forgetting about the question. Um, he thinks very carefully about it, using more archaic language for some people, using languages, even thinking about etymologies. You know, the way that he chose, as he as he uh, explains, the way he chose ancient English, meaning Old English or Anglo-Saxon, um, as sort of the analog uh, to Rohirric, so that their language is essentially Anglo-Saxon because it bears the same it's sort of a parallel linguistic relationship with, uh, with the language of the Shire, the language that, that the hobbits speak, um, as the relationship between Old English and Modern English. So he, so he uses that. But of course, when he has the... Ro it, but there's more than just that. When he has the Rohirrim speaking in, uh, in the common speech, when he has them speaking in Westron, he translates their... Ver, their Westron, using only words that have Anglo, as, as much as he can, only words that have Anglo-Saxon roots in in modern English, so that you get this sort of Anglo-Saxon flavor even in their modern English translated Westron language. Um, and again, this is the uh, this is the kind of thing that he. Um, uh, that that uh, that he really thought about carefully all the way through, not just willing to uh, um, to uh, to just sort of gloss over this as he sort of accuses most other world builders, fantasy world builders, of of, of glossing over. Um, uh, Noam is uh, protesting that it's uh, 
it's you know equally important you know that uh, that that then no actually if you could clarify what you mean when you say um, that is true I'm not sure what your pronoun refers to at the beginning there so I want to make sure I'm characterizing you properly anyway but Noam is clearly referring to uh, the importance of their science and religion and fashion and economy and all these other things as well. Yeah, but Tolkien's a philologist, and he'll tell you that's the language that's really the most important thing, right? Um, so it's not that those things aren't important. No, they totally are. It's just not as important as the language. What can he do, right? Um, yes, Yana, you make an excellent point. All of these things make it virtually impossible, Yana says. Yana, as a non-native English speaker, says, uh, virtually impossible to translate any of Tolkien's works to satisfaction. It's absolutely correct. Um, it is... It is an unfortunate side effect of how brilliant Tolkien's English rendering was in this way, how, 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 how complex um, and sensitive his English rendering is, that it is, I think, not just virtually impossible, it is absolutely impossible uh, to make, to translate it out of English into, a, into another language and really maintain any of those kinds of consistencies. I mean, I, I, don't, I think that you always lose something. I, and of course, this is always true in translation, but with Tolkien, it's especially true um, because of the, the the way that he paid attention to uh, some of these things. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yes, I agree. Um, Diego says, uh, speaking of that, he, he, he did leave a guide for other translators uh, who would translate his books to other languages as to how names should be translated in order to keep their meaning, such as Frodo's last name, how it should refer to a bag. Um, yes, he did have, uh, he, he, he didn't sort of try to ignore or pretend translations. In fact, of course, being a philologist, he was always very interested uh, in, uh, in translations. I, I remember uh, the the sort of the delightful reference uh, in one of his uh, letters, I, I think it was, you know, it was back around the time of the publication of The Hobbit, when he had like a standing bet with, I think, was it one of his sons or one of his colleagues, I'm forgetting, um, about how the first sentence of The Hobbit would be rendered in German, right? They, were, they, 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 they had a bet going as to how the German translation would go uh, in a hole in the ground they, uh, there lived The Hobbit. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. And Noam does point out that Tolkien's instruction only applies to some languages. Yeah, it's true. Um, it's true. And I think, uh, uh, Tim, he was excited to see the Icelandic one, but I, 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 might, I, I might be misremembering. Maybe it's the Icelandic. I, I seem to remember him uh, talking about the German uh, uh, translation. But anyway, um, uh Carolyn Morehouse says, uh, just thinking about other uh, creators of imaginary worlds and they're thinking about language. Um, Carolyn speaks up for Watership Down and the way that Adams thinks not only about language but about the thought patterns um, that underlie language uh, in the way that his rabbits talk in translation. Um, I agree, Carolyn. I love that element of Watership Down um, uh, and find many of the concepts that are conveyed in the Lapine language uh, phrases and words in Watership Down absolutely indispensable. Um, but uh, <clears throat> it would be fun to talk about Watership Down more. 
that's one of the books I would have I would vote for in the Mythgard Academy. It was a finalist this time. I was delighted to see it. Doesn't look like it's going to win this time around, but by golly, I would love to do a class on Watership Town. But I digress. Um, well, let's uh, let's move on because I want to I want to talk about another similar letter, which is. Um, where he's where he talks about some similar things. This one is to his uh, his publishers now. So remember, he's talking about strengthening his hand with his publishers. This is a later letter uh, to the publisher. I now wish that no appendices had been promised, for I think their appearance in truncated and compressed form will satisfy nobody. Certainly not me. Clearly, from the appalling mass of letters I receive, not those people that would like that kind of thing. Astonishingly many. While those who enjoy the book as an heroic romance only and find unexplained vistas part of the literary effect will neglect the appendices very properly. Uh, so this is the context of this letter is he's being harassed, uh, understandably so, by the publishers because the Return of the King has been delayed because he can't get the appendices together. They've got the story, he's just waiting for him to deliver the appendices. They're trying to get the book out. Uh, the, the, the Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers has been really popular. Everybody's clamoring for, 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 uh, for book three. Remember where the Two Towers ends, right? The Two Towers ends with uh, uh, Sam getting knocked unconscious. Frodo was alive, but was taken by the enemy. Now they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and the book was supposed to come out, and it hasn't come out, and everyone's getting irate, and you've got, like, you know, poor Alan and Unwin, you know, have, like, mobs with torches and pitchforks, um, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and here's Tolkien still dithering about the appendices, and, you know, and here's <laughs> Alan and Unwin pulling their hair out uh, over this, and so here's Tolkien's response to that, wishing no appendices had been promised, um, Notice how he character he, he 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 notice he alludes to that same clash between the literary effect and that desire for lore, right? Notice how he how he characterizes it differently. Um, I think their appearance in truncated and compressed form will satisfy nobody, right? That was the proposal, of course, by his publishers. Just give us what you've got, right? Well, let's just do something. Or you know, okay, it's not going to be all that you wanted it to be, but let's just take what we have, throw it in, and put it, get it out there. And he's like, no, it's really not going to work, right? It's not going to satisfy anybody, not me. Um, and he points out, look, there are all these people who really want this stuff. He receives all these letters of people who like the lore, who want more stuff. He's astonished how many of these he's receiving. While those who enjoy the book as an heroic romance only and find unexplained vistas as part of the literary effect, as he explained before, will neglect the appendices very properly. He accepts that, he kind of condones that, but notice how he seems to be putting himself on the other side of the fence here. Um, that is to say, he's no longer, um, he's no longer simply um, stating that, you know, he, uh, uh, that he would, uh, you know, that, 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 that he sort of sees both sides and, and sort of appreciates it, um, but, but really likes both. Now, he, he seems to be kind of on the side of the people who really want this stuff here. Anyway, I'm not now at all sure that the tendency to treat the whole thing as a kind of vast game is really good. Certainly not for me, who find that kind of thing only too fatally attractive. It is, I suppose, a tribute to the curious effect that story has when based on very elaborate and detailed workings of geography, chronology, and language that so many should clamor for sheer information or lore. 
but the demands such people make would again require a book at least the size of Volume 1. In any case, the background matter is very intricate, un useless unless exact, and compression within the limits available leaves it unsatisfactory. It needs great concentration and leisure, and being completely interlocked cannot be dealt with piecemeal. Okay, this is his explanation for why I haven't gotten you these appendices yet, right? Um, because the stuff is, is, is intricate. I can't rush it because it's useless if it's not exact. Uh, and it's going to be unsatisfactory if I compress that as much as you want it to be. Um, I, I, I can't be rushed because it needs great concentration. And I can't just throw in pieces at a time because it's all interlocked and it's all working together. So again, this is his explanation for why he's taking so long and why he still needs more time. Um, but, uh, but again, I think one of the things that we see here is him talking about people clamoring for Lord. It's not just you know the letter that he got from Naomi Mitchison, which he was hoping would strengthen his hand. Like, oh great, look, I've got a letter. I can point to this as evidence that people want this. Now he's referring to the appalling mass of letters that he's gotten. Um, uh, that really leads in this direction. Um, yeah, Luke asks, perhaps he's niggling with the appendices? You know, Luke, yeah. Uh, I think niggling is uh, certainly a, an accusation which could perhaps be brought home to him, especially since I would say, especially for people who don't share his particular passions for consistency and detail. Um, his publishers are clearly thinking, look, whatever you have, okay, it's not going to be your whole stuff, but whatever you have, even if you don't have the full explanation of the calendars, you know what? Some is better than nothing. People will like it. Let's just move on. Um, but he has a hard time with that. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, so we see how he is thinking through the appendices, how the appendices are being developed. They are, in a sense, an afterthought. That is, from a publishing standpoint, they're an afterthought. The story is ready to go. They're ready to go to press, but the appendices are not. However, they're very far from an afterthought as far as his actual process of development and composition is concerned. It's a matter of sorting through all this stuff um, and, uh, and putting it out there in a way that's going to make a lot of sense. Um, I want to make sure I get through the points I want to make about the frame, and that's probably as far as I'm going to get here today, and then we'll talk about more specific uh, topics and questions next time. But, um, but let's go ahead and talk about the frame. This is from, not the appendices, but from the, uh, the end of the prologue, um, the note on the texts that we get at the end of the prologue in The Fellowship of the Ring. The Thane's book was thus the first copy made of the Red Book, and contained much that was later omitted or lost. In Minas Tirith, it received much annotation, and many corrections, especially of names, words, and quotations in the Elvish languages, and there was added to it an abbreviation, sorry, an abbreviated version of those parts of the tale of Aragorn and Arwen which lie outside the account of the war. The full tale is stated to have been written by Barahir, grandson of the steward Faramir, sometime after the passing of the king. But the chief importance of Findigil's copy is that it alone contains the whole of Bilbo's translations from the Elvish. Findigil, King's writer, the guy who transcribed the Thane's book, um, uh, you know, who transcribed the copy of the Red Book that Pippin brought to Minas Tirith. Um, the chief importance of it, 
is that it fulfilled Tolkien's fantasy. It is it, it's it's it, Findigil's version is the, is what Tolkien wanted to, to get published but couldn't. He wanted when he brought the the Lord of the Rings to 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 Alan and Unwin. Um, he wanted them to publish the Silmarillion at the same time. You got the Silmarillion stuff. I got the Lord of the Rings, right? Thousand-page novel that I'm that, that I'm giving you. Publishing also these other hundreds of pages of ancient legends and mythology that go with them. Throw it all in the same package. Let's have a fifteen-hundred-page book. That's more fun than a thousand-page book, right? Um, this was Tolkien's. He wanted this like you know quadrilogy of books. Um, and the publisher said no. He almost dumped Alan and Unwin because of this. You know, he almost uh, published with HarperCollins instead, but he didn't. He, he instead ended up coming back to, to, to Alan and Unwin and agreed not to publish The Silmarillion along with The Lord of the, Lord of the Rings. But Findigil's copy, by golly, has it just as he hoped it would be. Uh, Bilbo's translations from the Elvish included. These three volumes were found to be a work of great skill and learning, in which, between 1403 and 1418, he, Bilbo, had used all the sources available to him in Rivendell, both living and written. But since they were little used by Frodo, being almost entirely concerned with the Elder Days, no more is said of them here. Since Mariotic and Peregrine became the heads of their great families, and at the same time kept up their connections with Rohan and Gondor, the libraries at Buckleberry and Tuckborough contained much that did not appear in the Red Book. In Brandy Hall, there were many works dealing with Eriador and the history of Rohan. Some of these were composed or begun by Mariadoc himself, though in the Shire he was chiefly remembered for his Herb Lore of the Shire and his Reckoning of Years, in which he discussed the relation of the calendars of the Shire and Bree to those of Rivendell, Gondor, and Rohan. So you have Mary to thank for the calendar appendix, apparently. He also wrote a short treatise on old words and names in the Shire, so showing special interest in discovering the kinship with the language of the Rohirrim of such Shire words as Mathen and old elements and place names. Calendars and philology. Mary was interested in those things, right? Um, okay. So, again, this is not from the appendices, but it's talking about the appendices in the context of, 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 of the prologue and talking about the Red Book. Several things uh, that we need to... Um, several things that we need to observe here is the frame, the literary frame that Tolkien is using, how he is presenting himself. This, of course, you know, he mentioned in his letter that one of the things often neglected by inventors of, of, of created worlds is, um, you know, of, of fictional worlds, one of the things they often neglect is language and uh, how translation is occurring. However, another thing that they often neglect, another thing that um, that just gets passed over is how did this story come into my hands, right? Uh, you know, I'm hearing this third-person narration of what happened in this play and only one person ever saw it, but we don't know if he, that he ever wrote anything down. How did the story get transmitted um, from the events that happen and all the way down to me? Another thing, again, which most books just never think about. And, and, and it's another thing which is sort of a tacit convention between writer and author. It's like a don't ask, don't tell thing, right? Don't, uh, you know, if a reader, if you don't ask how this, you know, how, the, how these papers came to be put in order, here I'm quoting from the, uh, the little epigram at the beginning of, uh, of Dracula. Um, if you don't ask that question, um, how did this narrative uh, come together and and come down to me, 
um, then I, I won't make a big deal of it, and I won't mention it, and uh, we'll just everybody will be happier, right? Tolkien doesn't do that. Um, uh, Yana had just mentioned uh, Dracula as one of the only books that does that. It's that's one of the things. That's a convention which comes from early on. The earliest novels, that is, the earliest prose romances, as they were called in the 18th century, um, which were which you know came to be called novels you know, when, when that genre was invented as a genre. Um, were full of that. Like it's it's they, they were all things which relied very heavily upon um, the transmission history. The two, of course, classic first novels in English are Robinson Crusoe, um, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, and Samuel Richardson's Pamela. And both of them have that same kind of uh, paper trail. Uh, Robinson Crusoe, of course, is the handwritten diary of you know this guy who experienced all these things, and it is the part of the fictional frame. One of the things that defined the novel as a genre originally was that kind of fictional frame, which would tell us how these true life stories came to come into our hands. Right, Dracula is doing the same thing. In fact, the composition of the story of Dracula is part of the story of Dracula. We always we actually see the characters running around with the with the manuscript, with the sheaf of papers, uh, and making copies of it, and and like you know Dracula trying to get in and destroy the manuscript of the book that we're reading right now. Um, is I mean that's it's one of the events in Dracula. It's really cool. I love Dracula. Um, uh, uh, Pamela, by the way, was again the private diary of Pamela, um, uh, and and one of the things you know at the time. In the 18th century, in the early 18th century, and both of those books were written, they were initially presented as if they were true. In fact, there were many people uh, who initially were kind of taken in by it and assumed that it was, in fact, a true historical account um, by some shipwrecked guy and by uh, some very uh, sensational and long-suffering maidservant, um, Pamela. Uh, so... Um, by the time we get to Dracula, we have him sort of playing with that convention a little bit more. Um, another theme of Dracula is how most people are not going to be able to accept the fact that this really happened, right? Um, but anyway, um, uh, so so anyway, like I said, that was that was that was originally a tradition, a part really of the whole novel form, but it's something that really falls out um, that. Uh, you know, it's a convention that 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 hasn't completely died, but kind of dies over the course of uh, of of the history of the Eng of the English novel. Until nowadays, again, it's a convention rarely observed. Tolkien observes it, right? So, what position does he put himself in here? Um, he is still doing something, right? We're not actually reading Findigil's copy, right? Um, it's not like, um, you know, here I'm thinking of another modern book which comically does this. Uh, one of the favorite, one of my family's favorite books, uh, the, uh, the, the Bunicula series uh, about the vampire bunny, um, series which is purportedly written by the family dog who delivers the, man, the, the manuscript uh, to the publisher. And we get the publisher's introduction where he talks about how Harold the dog shows up uh, with his manuscript. Um, but uh, anyway, um, there's, uh, uh, we don't get any, you know, it's, it's, it's not like we're supposed to imagine that Findigil's copy somehow arrived in the hands of a modern publisher and that's what we're getting, right? No, 
there is a Tolkien figure. In fact, even in The Hobbit, again, if you, if you, if you go to your copy of The Hobbit and you go to the title page and you take the time to transliterate the dwarf runes along the top and bottom of the page, you will see Tolkien referring to this because down here, if you can see them, um, let's see, can I point to them backwards? Yes, here. J.R.R. Tolkien, his name is there in Dwarf Runes because he lists himself as the compiler of this material. He's the modern compiler of this material. He's got a role, right? But his role is more of an editorial role than it is an authorial role. He's certainly not making up these stories, but he's compiling this stuff for us. And it's in that voice that he's giving us this introduction, right? So this introduction is him speaking not exactly in his own voice, right? He's still, he's still adopting a fictional voice because he's operating within the fictional frame. He is the fictional modern compiler who has studied the textual history of this stuff, has received this, you know, it's within the, fa the, the, the fictional frame that all of this stuff is true. And, uh, uh, and um, but anyways, you know, so he's, he's gotten all these old texts and he's telling us how these stories came down to us. And of course here, he's telling us about where all of this uh, appendix material came from, which he's compiled and put together, but it, 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 but it was originally composed um, primarily under the, uh, under the direction, if not personally, by uh, Marion Pippin. So that's the fictional frame of the appendices, generally, but not always. Um, oh, actually, wait, let me, uh, let me, I, 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 sorry, I have another paragraph here I want to read. At Great Smiles, the books were of less interest to Shire folk, though more important for larger history. None of them was written by Peregrine, but he and his successors collected many manuscripts written by scribes of Gondor, mainly copies or summaries of histories or legends relating to Elendil and his heirs. Only here in the Shire were to be found extensive materials for the history of Numenor, and the arising of Sauron. It was probably at great smiles that the tale of years was put together, with the assistance of material collected by Mariadoc. Though the dates given are often conjectural, especially for the Second Age, they deserve attention. It is probable that Mariadoc obtained assistance and information from Rivendell, which he visited more than once. There, though Elrond had departed, his sons long remained, together with some of the High Elven folk. It is said that Celeborn went to dwell there after the departure of Galadriel, but there is no record of the day when at last he sought the Grey Havens, and with him went the last living memory of the Elder Days in Middle-earth. A couple of interesting things here. Um, notice how, again, the voice that Tolkien is adopting as narrator here is very much a sort of scholarly editorial voice. Though the dates given are often conjectural, especially for the Second Age, they deserve attention. Right? He's certainly not making anything up. He's providing commentary and context. Right? There is evidence to support the idea that these things are genuine and important. Right? Um, that there's some kind of accuracy here. Um, definitely, definitely uh, evidence to support this. Um, so, uh, so here are some reasons why you should uh, take seriously Appendix B, which is only selections from the Tale of Years, which was put together probably, at Great Smiles. Um, now, as I said uh, when I was segueing before I forgot the, before I realized I had forgotten this last paragraph, um, in general, Tolkien maintains this frame 
of the scholarly commentator, but not always. Um, this is from Appendix F. The language represented in this history by English was the Westron or common speech of the Westlands of Middle-earth in the Third Age. In the course of that age, it had become the native language of nearly all the speaking peoples, save the elves, who dwelt within the bounds of the old kingdoms of Arnor and Gondor. That is, that is along the coast, that is, along the coasts from Umbar northward to the Bay of Forakel, and inland as far as the Misty Mountains and the Efel Duath. It had also spread north up the Anduin, occupying the lands west of the river and east of the mountains as far as the Clavin Fields. At the time of the War of the Ring, at the end of the age, these were still its, still its bounds as a native tongue, though large parts of Eriador were now deserted, and few men dwelt on the shores of the Anduin between the Gladden and Rauros. A few of the ancient wild men still lurked in the Juadon forest in Enorian, and in the hills of Dunland, a remnant lingered of an old people, the former inhabitants of much of Gondor. These clung to their own languages, while in the plains of Rohan there dwelt now a northern people, the Rohirrim, who had come into that land some five hundred years earlier. But the Westron was used as a second language as a second language of intercourse by all those who still retained a speech of their own, even by the elves, not only in Arnor and Gondor, but throughout the vales of Anduin and eastward to the further eaves of Mirkwood. Even among the wild men in the Dunlendings who shunned other folk, there were some that could speak it, though brokenly. Now, question is, is Tolkien out of character here or not? Is he still in the character that he was in in the prologue? Is he still adopting that I am just the scholar, I am not the inventor thing? You could still say so, right? Is this Mary's work that we're getting? It's less certain that that's so. The narrator is speaking here not as if he's just transmitting to us material, you know, sort of uh, transmitting transmitting to us material that he's gotten from Mariotic, um, but is commenting on how it's represented in the history that we've just read. The language represented in this history by English was the Westron or common speech of the Westlands of Middle-earth uh, of, of Middle in the Third Age. I have chosen to represent Westron by English. Um, <clears throat> notice, that's not a thing that if he were an editor, even if he were a translator, so say somehow these ancient texts have come into his hands, Tolkien's hands, right, the Tolkien, the scholarly editor, um, and so he's going to do a translation into modern English, because that would be handy, right? If he just prints it in Westron, no one's going to be able to read it. So uh, he's got to translate it to English for us. Isn't that kind, right? But to say that he has represented Westron by English is to pull the curtain back a little bit more. Right? I think that he, he does step out of character a little bit more in the language sections uh, than he does in other places. The rest of this could be parts of a treatise by Mary, right? That, you know, in his the philological work that we were told that Mary was interested in. But that but that element of it, that so you know, the whole premise of Appendix F is that he's trying to maintain. And I find that actually really interesting about the, you know, I, we think about his love for the philology stuff and how he was talking about it. It's the one thing that has sort of driven him, uh, not to fully abandon, but to, but to sort of step outside of that frame, and he really doesn't step outside of it anywhere else that I can think of. Um, here's another example. The Westron or common speech has been entirely translated into English equivalents. All hobbit names and special words are intended to be pronounced accordingly. For example, Bulger has a G as in bulge, and Matham rhymes with Fathom. 
In transcribing the ancient scripts, I have tried to represent the original sounds, so far as they can be determined, with fair accuracy, and at the same time to produce words and names that do not look uncouth in modern letters. High Elven Quenya has been spelt as much like Latin as it sounds aloud. For this reason, C has been preferred to K in both Elder and, tongue, in both elder and languages, to make it look like Latin. The following points may be observed by those who are interested in such details. Um, so a couple observations to make here. Again, is this, you know, is this a scholarly, is this a scholarly editor speaking? Possibly again in transcribing the ancient scripts. Right, it does sound like he's, you know, he's 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 working with those um, with those, you know, that he's got the old manuscripts there. Um, you know, and that he's 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 been he's been trying to work through those. Um, yes, yes, it does kind of sound like that. But again, I think that um, the way that he's talking about representing the original sounds, he's speaking more. The voice here reminds me more of that forward to the second edition, where he talks about the organic growth of the story. Here he's talking about the languages in that same kind of external organic way, like they just exist independent of him. Um, Andrew points out it's interesting how this parallels with the frame of the Notion Club papers, which he wrote in the late 40s, uh, or not far from when he wrote the appendices, that same kind of historic tone. Um, yes, the Notion Club papers are very interesting. Um, Diego says at the end he clarifies that this whole explanation is intended for people who are interested in languages and would like to know such things. Yes, there is again that that sort of humility gesture uh, there at the end. Who are interested in people? Who, those who are interested in such details, not assuming that everybody is going to be one of them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Alyssa points out after the recent philology class that uh, Tom Shippey was just teaching at Mythgard, uh, she says, so far as they can be determined, uh, especially strikes me as terrific verisimilitude, considering the controversies about the exact values of Proto-Indo-European Proto sounds. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, uh, he, he, he recognizes the fact that the actual determination of the original sounds of these ancient scripts that he's working with you know, we can't be absolutely confident about them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, like I said, I do think that we can see him... Um, Appendix E and Appendix F do seem to be operating on a different kind of premise. That is to say, they, um, they do... Although we get the sort of justification for them within the fictional frame by Mary's philological interests, um, in uh, in in the beginning of, of you know at the, that are alluded to there at the end of of, of the prologue, um, we still don't have that same voice. I think we get we get Tolkien speaking in closer to his own perspective. By and and by that I mean primarily Tolkien speaking as story writer rather than as scholarly scholarly editor. Uh, even though there are gestures to that here. Um, I don't think that that's, you know, again, who is that I? Is it Tolkien in the first person? Who is the I? Is it Tolkien himself? Or is it, uh, or is it the editor? Um, and I don't think that it's sort of a slam dunk, which is which. Because remember, you would think that the guy who wrote that business in the foreword about discovering the significance of, um, 
you know, these elements from this story that he's supposedly making up himself, um, you'd think that that sounded like somebody who was not the writer of the story, but just the editor or discoverer of the story, right? Someone who's putting it together from various historical sources rather than somebody who is... Uh, uh, who is actually inventing the story as he goes along. Um, the way that he talks about the languages sound very similar to that. And so, to, you know, to me, it, it, it sort of calls into question um, how much he's sticking to the frame. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that it's a, a blemish uh, that he is... Uh, that he's not sticking to the frame. Um, but, uh, but that... I think that it's it's interesting to look at the different appendices and the way in which it's just another thing I think that puts appendix E and appendix F in a different position for him that he relates to those appendices very differently. I think that we can see the way he relates in them by the way that he does I think act a little bit less consistently with that historical frame um, in uh, in 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 those appendices than elsewhere. All right, I am right on the cusp of. Um, I am uh, I am right on the cusp of starting to uh, address some of the more uh, kind of random observations and questions that I was sent. I think I'm actually going to, even though I know it's shockingly early for me to end a class, we're going to do another session on these. I think it'd probably be easier to start fresh uh, with those from the beginning. Um, so I think I'm actually going to end here a little bit early today, um, but we're going to we're going we're, we're going to have the one more week. Um, and uh, I said I, I'm I will uh, keep an eye on the web page. You know I'm gonna I'll post on it. I'll post about it on my social media page when you know, when we're gonna do the next class. Definitely, um, I'll probably go ahead and schedule that for next Thursday. Um, but um, but keep an eye on my social media sites and keep an eye on the the web page um, for the for the uh, Return of the King class. Um, because I'll, I'll be posting it there too, so both the uh, the time and the link for that class session. So, um, thanks everybody, uh, and uh, those of you who are coming to me, I look forward to seeing you. One of the things I got to do is go pack, actually, uh, and finish pulling things together. Um, but uh, I'm very look, very much looking forward to seeing some of you uh, at Mythmoot, and uh, I, uh, I hope that uh, those of you who I'm not going to get to see. Um, will uh, uh, will um, uh, will be able to come in a future year so I get to meet you uh, at Mythmoot maybe next year um, anyway uh, thanks everybody oh <laughs> Ed tells me that uh, um, that uh, the, uh, the 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 battle between Ender's game and unfinished tales is still a tie so uh, again if you haven't voted go out and vote uh, anyway thanks everybody and I will see you guys probably next week thanks bye